Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our, ma- in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and your offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who selected us from all the peoples and gave us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. 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 Alright, tonight we are going to be looking at, as you saw in the title, What Jews Believe, a response to Rabbi Stuart Federo. And I came across Rabbi Stuart Federo a couple months ago. I was perusing, I don't remember what I was looking at, but I came across his website, What Jews Believe. Org. And you might think, wow, what a nice website. This should be very informational. Give me a lot of things to ponder. Give me some good insight on what Jews actually believe. But if you'll notice the links on the right, this is not an ordinary website. This is specifically an anti-missionary website, which means <laughs> that this is a website devoted towards destroying or at least undermining beliefs in the apostolic scriptures, Yeshua as God, the Messiah, so on and so forth. So you see on the right, you've got a couple of links. One, one person cannot die for the sins of another. Going down, Jesus was not the Messiah. And there's links below that talking about uh, the Jews for Jesus movement, Messianic Jews, and Hebrew Christians, and trying to expose those movements for the evidence fraud that they are. So we're just going to, I'm not going to pick anyone in particular, I just picked the first argument. One person cannot die for the sins of another. If I could, um, it's interesting that he's doing this in response to Rabbi Stuart Federo because Rabbi Stuart Federo is based in Houston. (laughs) Um, And uh, our community there, uh, Congregation Beth Messiah, um, have had yeah, he, let's put it this way he hates <laughs> congregation of Beth Messiah I'm very familiar with his short federal and some of the really just flat out lies that he perpetrates John, is he a Talmudist? what do you mean? does, is, does he follow and subscribe to the teachings in the Talmud? Good question. We're going to get to that point and hang on to it. Because that's important for answering one it person that cannot die from the sins of another because in the Talmud there's, you know... Whoa, minus one for anticipation. Uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to all of what the Talmud says about this particular argument. If that's oh, right. okay. So, alright. Well, hang on. Hang on. I'll, uh, it's interesting because he is what, what we see just right off the bat just by the title of the page we see reactionary because frankly Jews don't believe anything until Rambam so right. it's a moot point he's using Christian philosophy to argue against Christianity and phrases essentially and we'll get into that uh, and explicitly so we're going to dive into his argument here and you're going to need your Bibles, so if you have them, open them. If you don't have them, find one. Get next to somebody who has one. We're going to be doing a lot of Bible work. Because the first session, part one, is going to be only in the Bible. And I'll detail why that is. And part two is going to be rabbinic writings and second temple literature. And I'll explain that in a moment. 
And before we begin, I would like to ask a question, a show of hands, who believes that there is a God? Raise your hand. Who believes there is a God? Well, bad news, according to the Bible, you're all wrong. I hate to break it to you, but Isaiah 53.1 says there is no God. <laughs> so according to the scriptures, everybody here is wrong. But, of course, that's ridiculous. Why is that ridiculous? What is Psalm 53.1 and the parallel in Psalm 14.1 say? It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the problem with this is you can't simply quote half a verse and try to prove a point from it. You need to have at least the whole verse. That's just... <laughs> and we also, I would like to have not just the whole verse, the whole chapter, the preceding chapter, the subsequent chapter. That would be helpful to creating some kind of a statement as opposed to this. So before we begin, we're going to talk about what are our definitions? What is our methodology for approaching the scripture? And I'm going to explain why this is so needful and why we need to establish this before we begin. So we need to understand the genre of whatever text we're talking about. If we're in Genesis, we need to understand we're in narrative. If we're in the Psalms, we need to understand we're in poetry. If we're in Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature, and Revelation, apocalyptic literature. Genre matters. It matters what type of writing you're in to interpret the phrases in that particular book. So, context is the next one. That's an obvious one. And then a couple others that we don't really think about. The original audience. And there's two branches of original audience that we need to consider. The first is the original participating audience. That is, those who are in the action as it's unfolding on the biblical page. The second aspect of original audience are those who are reading the words after the fact. So after the writer of whatever scripture passage you're in has experienced what's happened and is later reflecting on it by writing, that is also an original reading audience, and that's very important. Secondly, the character of the author. We never really consider this. A lot of times we approach biblical texts and we're just looking at the words, but we never think, who is Moses? What did the original audience think about Moses at this particular time? What about Paul? What is Paul's heart like? What's his character like? We need to also consider that. And lastly, other clear verses from Scripture. If you're in a, a verse and you come across and you say, I have no idea what this means, and all these other things aren't helping you out, what are some other verses in Scripture that can maybe shed some light on the difficult verse? So if you've got that, here is Rabbi Stuart Federo's page. If you click on the link, here's where it goes. And the title, look at the title. That title is not objective. That title is already leading you in a certain direction. It's leading you to a certain argument and a certain conclusion that everything else is going to support, whether you realize it or not. So the box, the gray box, is the summary. And I'll read it. Wait, before you read the summary, yeah. read the title for those who are listening oh, along. Gotcha. Yep, the title is Jews believe that one person's death cannot atone for the sins of another. Already, I, I would hope that everything in your, all of us are asking, what Jews? Which Jews believe that? Not all Jews believe anything, really, as we've hounded on time and time again. So the summary that Rabbi Federal offers in this particular book is, quote, in short, the Bible is clear, and it is consistent. One person cannot die for the sins of another. In other words, the sins committed by one person cannot be wiped out by the punishment given to another. 
In Exodus 32, 30, 35, Moses asked God to punish him for the sin committed by the people in regards to the golden calf. God tells Moses that the person who committed the sin is the one who must receive the punishment. Then in Deuteronomy 24.16, God simply states this as a basic principle. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. This concept <coughs> is repeated in the prophets. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sinneth it shall die. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. The prophet Jeremiah looks to the day when the mistaken belief, note that, the mistaken belief that one man's death atones for another man's sins shall no longer be held by anyone. In Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30, the prophet says, In those days they shall, know, they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But every one that sh shall die for his own iniquity, every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. No one can die for the sins of another. And you'll notice, in a more complete explanation, he says, this, the Christian understanding, is that Jesus, the one they believe to be the Messiah, died for the sins of all humanity. In this view, the Messiah is supposed to be the blood sacrifice. And later on in the article, he says this. This is why the Jews believe that there was, no, there was not any redemptive power at all in Jesus' death. Such a belief is unbiblical, no basis in the sacred text, and no justification in Jewish theology. And then continuing on, some Christians may choose to interpret other Bible verses to indicate the opposite, that one can die for the sins of another. If that were the case, note this, that would mean that God changed his mind, or that he did not mean what he said in Deuteronomy 24, 16. <laughs> Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. But God does not change his mind, or his nature, as we read in Malachi 3, 6. For I am the eternal, I change not. Therefore, your sons of Jacob are not consumed. And this is the really interesting portion that we're going to dive into the argument after this. In a newer technique, some Christians are now quoting rabbinic writings to make it seem as if the rabbis accepted the concept of vicarious atonement. That is, one person dying for the sins of another. However, even if several respected rabbis did agree with this idea, <laughs> we must still go by no what Jews. the Bible states. And the Bible states in no uncertain terms, every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Do you remember? Oh, he's reaching. I find that amazing. So Rabbi Stuart Federer plainly admits, hey, the rabbis actually... They may believe this. <laughs> Even so, They're not Jewish. Let's, let's stick to what the Bible says. Exactly. So he wants to go so, solo scripture. Yeah, we'll go there. Solo scripture. <laughs> We're going to go through lesson one. We're not going to touch on any rabbi. We're not going to talk about any commentator. Not Matthew Henry. Not Ramban. No one. We're going to just walk through the scriptures. The ones that he quotes. And we're going to see if we come to the same conclusion that he does. If so, then we need to alter our theology. Right. If not, then we need to understand what's wrong here. So let's go. Uh, this is sorry. This is what he was saying at the bottom here. Newer technique. We must still go by what the Bible says. So we're going to first go to Exodus 32. Please turn to Exodus 32. And remember, while you're turning there, our methodology. Turning to Exodus 32. The original audience. As for this man Moses, this is verse 1, who has brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. We may be reading into this, but it doesn't sound as though they're overly concerned with Moses' absence. He's gone. He's been gone for at least 40 days. Nobody's gone out to look for him. They don't seem too concerned that he might have died or that something could have happened to him. They're just saying, who knows? We're not sure. 
So the original audience is questioning, who is this Moses guy? What, what's the, why should we care about him? What's the point? Second, genre. We're not in poetry. We're not in wisdom literature. This is a narrative, so it should be pretty straightforward. Lastly, context. If we look at verses 13 through 14, can I have somebody read those two verses, please? From Exodus 32. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. All right, so already we have at least a trajectory being set that the remembrance of former saints does in some way have an effect on God not wiping out his people, whether that's the covenant promises, whether that's the righteousness of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or whether they're the two sides of the same coin. We see here that the context is already pushing us in one direction, so let's keep that in mind. And here is Exodus 32, 30 through 35. And I tried to be, again, I'm trying to be as objective and fair as possible. This is my translation from the Masoretic text, which is what MT means. The Masoretic text is a 10th century translate, not translation, a putting on the vowels of the sacred text of the Tanakh by Orthodox Jews. So the Orthodox Jews never had the, the Torah didn't, and the Tanakh didn't have the vowels on the consonants of the entire Tanakh. So these men, taking with the tradition of what the vowels were, added them to this text. So the only reason you know what the Bible says on any given point is because the Masoretes in the Middle Ages preserved the traditions that had been handed down to them and added the vowel points. So here's what verse 30 says. And here's where the controversial aspect is. Could I have somebody read it in a different translation, please? Any translation. The next day Moses said to the people, You've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. Right. Translations don't really differ here in this passage very much. It's pretty straightforward, so mine does not differ a whole lot from the one that Joseph read. And the key phrase that we're going to be honing in on is Moses' objective here, which is, perhaps I will atone. This is what he's doing. This is what he's, what he's after. The golden calf incident has just happened. The Levites have just strapped swords to their thighs, killed their own countrymen, the ones who sinned with the golden calf. Aaron is in huge trouble because he's the one who t made the golden calf, even though later on he says, you know, I threw gold into the fire. And out came this calf. I put, the people did it. Like, you, can't, you can't blame me. So everybody is in hot water here. And Moses has just come down from the mountain. He has just seen the debauchery that has taken place, smashed the covenant tablets, and here we are. Perhaps I will atone for your sins. And so perhaps I will atone. Moses, in the heat of the moment, 
uses that phrase. That's the original participating audience. But I'd like to look at Moses upon reflecting on this incident, what language he uses for this particular, perhaps I will atone. And we're gonna look at, a little bit technical here, stay with me, I'm gonna try to just break this down. Atone, very simple. What is the basic meaning of atone? Cover. 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 And what is usually involved with an atonement? Blood. Blood, death. But we're gonna see here that there's another use of atone that can be used for kippar. It's the same word, Yom Kippur, kippar. That's what it looks like. And when Moses uses it in Exodus 32:30, preserved by us, by the Masoretes, who handed us down this tradition, is this particular tense of the word. And to be fancy, it's called the peel in perfect first person singular. That's irrelevant. What you need to know <laughs> is that it's intensified, incompleted action that Moses alone is doing. In Biblical Hebrew, there is no past, present, or future, like theoretical. It's only do or done and not done. It's action-oriented. That's the Hebrew mindset. It's either an incomplete action or completed. It could be past, present, or future in any one of those. Best translated, I will atone. Pretty straightforward, sort of ambiguous. The grammar doesn't allow for an either obvious either or here. So in other words, I will atone through prayer. That would be a causative. I will make atonement would be an easy way to state that. Or it doesn't allow for an easy self-sacrifice. I will be in atonement, which is a passive idea. So it's really kind of an in the middle between one and two. We're not really sure. It doesn't give us the answer. It just gives us some options, the kippur. So in accordance with our methodology, we need to see where else Moses uses this word. And another place, that he uses the word, if you want to turn to it, is Genesis 32. He uses not only Kippur, this is the only time outside of the tabernacle it's used in this tense. And it should tell us something about what Moses is trying to convey with this tense of the word. So let me, let me, let me see if I got you. Gotcha, yeah. So the word is used all over the place. Kippur, yes. But this is the only other place in the Torah where it's used in the same tense. In the intensive, incomplete action tense. This is it. Good. So if you want to figure out how it's, what the meaning is, we've got to get a parallel. And here it is. So can I have somebody read Genesis 32, 20 through 21? He similarly instructed the second, also the third, as well as all who followed the droves, saying... In this manner shall you speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the tribute that precedes me, and afterwards I will face him. Perhaps he will forgive me. All right, so the, the phrase, I will appease, is the same phrase. Perhaps I will appease. Perhaps I will atone Esau by these gifts. But Esau, his response in 3310, someone... Yaakov said, No, please. If now I have won your favor, then accept my gift. Just seeing your face has been like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me. Okay, so the context of this is very briefly because we need to move forward. Jacob is scared of Esau at this point, and he's thinking he's as good as dead. So he's sending all of these gifts to Esau. He's thinking, Okay, perhaps my gifts will atone. 
for Esau, and then I'll see his face, and everything will be okay, and he'll accept me. Esau's not hurting for money. Esau is not hurting for goods. That's not Jacob's intention here. Jacob's intention is to see Esau's face. Jacob's intention is to be accepted by this offering. Reconciliation. So there's not just a death aspect to Kippur, to atonement. There are two parties being reconciled to one another, creating a continual presence of shalom between the two people. This is very important because this is telling us Moses writing about this after the fact and the tradition that's been preserved for us says this same thing. Perhaps I will atone for you as he looks back on it. Perhaps I will appease God so that there will be a continual presence of shalom between you, Israel, and between God. Since you went for strictly the same tense, which would have been first, per, uh, first person, right? I would, I'd be willing to bet that if we looked at the Yom Kippur passages, we would find it's exactly the same, only it's third person, because it's describing that the priest will make atonement absolutely for the altar and so forth. I was, uh, this is all outside of the tabernacle. I try not to use any tabernacle passages so that we can see how the atonement functions outside of that. So cool. good point, there. yes, sir. Actually, and, and it's interesting that you focused on outside the tabernacle because one of the, the there's a false premise being presented by the rabbi here. The false premise is that Christianity's view of atonement is 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 in in view of Yeshua is wrong, but it's because either he misunderstands Christian view of atonement or Christianity misunderstands atonement. Right. The point is though, we're not talking about blood sacrifice for something right. or blood appeasement for something. We're talking about something totally different. Atonement is merely a covering. Right. Which, and as you point out very very well here, always results in a reconciliation if right. it's accepted. There's two parties. So keep that in mind. This is Moses yes sir. John. I was just gonna say to his point it, it, the rabbi, this guy probably wouldn't have even written this if he had read the book of Hebrews, you know, because it states clearly that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, and there's a, there are so many things that just kind of slam dunk his argument. I think Rabbi Federer has read the book of Hebrews. Sure, yeah. uh, <laughs> if you look, if he has a he has a book out called Christianity and Judaism: A Contrast. If you read that book, he quotes from the New Testament. A lot, not necessarily well, but he, he is familiar with it. So I'm not certain. I haven't seen a quote from Hebrews, but he may have. But that's a good point, though. And actually, the way that Hebrews is more normally translated in most English Hebrews Bibles, he probably it probably makes his argument even better. That's true. <laughs> the new covenant aspects. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. So keep in mind, this is Moses writing after the fact. But we need to keep in mind what Moses is thinking in the action, what he's doing. So here's the text again. And consider this. Moses has just come down from the mountain in glory. He's been with God. He's received the Torah. But his second ascension is not that great. His second ascension, he huffs up the mountain, bursts into God's presence. The people of God, by the way, the only people of God on the planet, are about to be wiped out from the face of the earth. So Moses bursts into God's presence and says, God, Look at your people. And he's not informing God, of course. God is the one who originally informed him. Nor is he blaming God for this sin. But he's just saying, God, look, be shocked. You and I are on the same side, right, God? But look at these people. 
<laughs> and then in his zeal in approaching God, he utters a half sentence. He says, so if you will forgive their sin, and then he stops because he realizes, well, what is God going to use to forgive their sin? Aaron might not be the best candidate at this point. <laughs> We've seen what his actions have done. And the parallel in Deuteronomy makes it clear that Moses had to appease for Aaron as well. So, well, what about these new Levites? Well, uh, they might not be the best either because they are just tainted by the golden calf incident. So Moses, in his zeal, says, okay, if you'll forgive their sin, what about me? You can use me. Blot me out in behalf of them. So Moses presents himself as the atonement. And we need to ask the question, does God forgive, does God accept Moses' offer or not? Here's God's response. And Adonai said, whoever sinned against me, I will blot him out from my book. And you can see Moses saying, that a yes or a no? <laughs> because this time, I mean, you can think about it. And Adonai said, whoever sinned against me. So in other words, yeah, I'm going to blot you out on behalf of whoever sinned. Or you could read this as, whoever sinned against me, so no, not you, whoever sinned, I will blot out. So it could go either way. So the Kippur isn't really helping us out, except for after the fact, kind of giving you a little hint. But God's response is somewhat ambiguous. So is he accepted or not? God does not accept him. We need to just be honest with the text. It seems that on the face value, Moses is not blotted out for Israel. But on the other hand, he's not rejected. So this doesn't really help us. But it does, though. Because Moses, remember his character, he doesn't seem to think that there's any problem with offering himself as an atonement on behalf of Israel. Right. In fact, we saw in verses 13 and 14, he said, hey, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's right. And now he's saying, hey, blot me out. Moses seems to think that this is an acceptable alternative. Human sacrifice doesn't seem to be out of Moses' mind. Moreover, God doesn't say, oh, Moses, I would never think of such a thing. How can you even say that? He doesn't condemn Moses. It's ambiguous. So what do we know from this? I'm going to continue on, because the next two chapters are going to give us our answer, and we've got to hurry up to the next two portions. So if Moses was rejected, as Rabbi Federer says, and Israel was blotted out, the commission in chapter 32... 34 of Exodus makes no sense. Moses is told again, lead the people into Israel. Who is he leading if everyone's been wiped out? If everyone has been blotted out for their own sin, there's no one left. Everyone's dead. But let's continue on. We need to consider chapters 33 and 34. So I'm going to just give you a three-point outline of 33 through 34. So chapter 33, you see the title there? Follow along with me, would you? We see that, and again, in 33.1, God commands Moses to depart, leave his people into the promised land. But this is not redundant. Obviously, Moses hasn't left yet. What's he doing? Why isn't he gone? There's obviously people still left to lead. So we know that something is happening here. Consider 33, verse 7-9. Verse we begin to get a glimpse of Moses' relationship with God. So consider the whole golden calf incident is now fading into the background. And coming into the foreground is a beautiful relationship between Moses and Adonai. That's what's coming into the foreground here in these two chapters. Think on that. 
Why is that important? That Moses is coming into the foreground. In 33.10, the people begin to not only respect Moses, they rise as he walks into the tent, but they also watch him as he goes in. Could that be worship? Are the people's hearts starting to turn? And then in 33.11, Adonai and Moshe speak face to face. They are friends. This is their relationship. And then in 33.12-18, it gets even more focused. But now it turns from Moses' relationship with God to Moses' intercession for the people. If you look at 33.12, he's pleading for the people. Again, 33.13, he's pleading for the people. God says, hey, I'm going to make a new nation out of you. But then in in 33.15, Moses says, but what about your people? Your people, your people, your people. Moses just can't stop. He can't stop thinking about Israel. And then in 34, we see that Moses' intercession succeeds in the forgiveness of Israel. How do we know that? How do we know that? Where do we get that from this text? Consider 34.10. God begins giving the covenant documents again. That's miraculous. The Torah is not a burden. The Torah is a blessing showing that God wants to be in a relationship with you. That's what it means to have the Torah. He wants you. And then the major portions of the Exodus are covered from this point forward. But what is amazing about this is what's absent. God is saying, okay, when you go into the land, make sure not to get snared with idolatry. But he doesn't say, make sure not to get snared by idolatry. Because we know what just happened with the golden calf. No, it's not mentioned. It's as if God has blotted it out. It's not even there. The history of the Exodus up until this point does not include the golden calf. So let's summarize. Does Adonai reject Moses' sacrifice? Technically, yeah. He doesn't, on the surface, seem to accept it. Does Adonai reject Moses' sacrifice because he always rejects his righteous atoning for the unrighteous ipso facto? Unprovable from this. That's way too, you're you're reading a lot into that. So what does this passage prove? That Moses' ministry is far deeper than what he originally thought. And we get this from Moses' writing after the fact. Moses recognizes that he may have been a little short-sighted in his original offer. Hey, blot me out! But God says no. I need you to be alive because I require a living intercessor in between me and my people creating a continual presence of shalom. And the clincher on this, if somebody could please read, you don't have to all turn there, but someone, Psalm 106, 19 through 23, while we're turning there. Yes, sir. Even if you wanted to hang your hat on the first point that God did not accept Moses' offer to be an atonement, I think from other contexts in these two chapters you could you could also argue that if if not Moses is if if Moses isn't acting as some sort of an atonement clearly the patriarchs are because he he makes a statement a couple times referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he promised to give the land to their descendants and whatnot. so at the end of the day he can't wipe them out because if he does, then he's lied to them. And in their merit, he preserves them, even if you don't see any any value in what Moses did. That's right. That's right. To, to that point, actually, I have a tendency not to ever use the word sacrifice in conjunction with atonement because it carries that the misunderstanding attached to it. Moses' first offer was to atone. As you said, he blurted out, blot my name out. So he's, he's doing an exchange. Right. I would offer that 
it's that exchange that God rejected. But in fact, God, and, and it's demonstrable, I think, maybe not just in that passage, but in the passages that follow, that actually God did use exact, he did atone. Yeah. He used Moses atoning for the people right. on an ongoing basis. Here's the key. Yeah. The difference is atonement does not require death. And that's the point of this aspect of atonement. It's not simply a blood sacrifice. It's the reconciliation between parties. Absolutely. So, does somebody have Psalm 106, 19 through 23, please? They made a calf. You got it? Oh, yeah. Oh. They made a calf in Horev and worshipped the molden image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea, Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. So was Moses successful or unsuccessful according to the scriptures? He was successful. His original offer was not condemned, and the psalmist agrees. So, alright, we've been very technical. Take a deep breath. And we're going to get practical. Three-point response. Rabbi Federer comes up to you and says, Hey, nice to meet you. You believe in Yeshua? Haven't you ever read Exodus 32? You say, wow, Rabbi Federer, good to see you too. I have, and here's a three-point response for you. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Moses sees no inherent problem with the righteous atoning for the unrighteous, per his mention, with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and his own offer. Secondly, God neither accepts nor condemns his offer, so it's wrong to draw a conclusion that God condemns it, because he never says that. Thirdly, the remainder of the context indicates the following. Moses may have been short-sighted. God had a far longer, long-lasting plan to have Moses as a living intercessor involved. Was more to atonement than just death? There's the other side, reconciliation by a living mediator. And Psalm 106 indicates that Moses did stand in the gap, and he was successful. So keep that in mind. So we're going to move on, because we've got to move forward. Any questions on that section so far? Any other comments, though? If you were Rabbi Federo, would you be convinced? I'd ask, I'd ask <laughs> Rabbi Federo to stop using the phrase in the merit of. <laughs> if he uses that. He does. He, all right, well. And next week <laughs> he we're going to... He can't read anything without saying in the merit of. Next he week we're going to get to the, uh, the Talmud and Second yeah. Temple literature, yeah. and it's going to be pretty much a disaster for the other side of the argument. But we're not there yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't want to drop hints or anything on how this is going to go. <laughs> okay. That was very helpful. Though. That was. Baruch Hashem. Okay. Sour grape oracles, what he mentioned before, Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31. Before we get into Rabbi Federer's argument, I want you guys to read this. Just read it in context. If I could have somebody read each of those, you can just look at the screen. Somebody read the first and another the second, please. Then the word of Adonai came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord Adonai, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sings will die. In second. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. 
Behold, days are coming, declares Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house, and with the house of Judah. All right. So Rabbi Federer seems to think this is pretty self-explanatory. Slam dunk for the anti-missionary argument. But let's see what he says. Rabbi Federer comments on the following. The whole of chapter 18, Ezekiel, and of the book of Ezekiel expands upon and clarifies this principle. Furthermore, this chapter teaches that all we have to do to gain God's forgiveness is to stop doing the bad and to start doing the good. Nowhere does it say that we must have a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Whoa, hold on, Rabbi Federer. That's not that what is it's about said. four arguments and one little paragraph. And part of that's not even relevant to our conversation, mm -hmm. is it? We're not talking about what you need to gain God's favor. We're talking about can the righteous atone for the unrighteous. Furthermore, he has a section where he talks about this on his website. Why bring it up here? Could it be that Rabbi Federer thinks that perhaps his argument's a little weak, so he needs to throw in some extra... Short on material. Short on material. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be guilty of psychological projection, but... And the next, I found a little bit offensive, to be completely full disclosure here. Again, this same passage principle is stated in the book of Jeremiah, in the 31st chapter, God tells us it's such a time in the future where no one will continue to believe in such a thing. Like it's flippant. But we're going to see where such a thing is found here in a moment. It's not going to look pretty. Watch so, out, Rabbi. <laughs> Post-Enlightenment Protestant critical scholars. What does that even have to do with anything? And what does that even mean? Why bring that up? I'd like to bring it up because... I deal with these folks a lot, being in seminary, Protestant seminary particularly, and the post-Enlightenment critical scholars are scholars that, if you believe anything conservative about the Bible, they automatically disbelieve it. <laughs> you believe the Bible's inspired, you're wrong, they just they believe the opposite. You believe Moses actually wrote the five books of the Bible? Moses Dr. never existed. David never existed. Yeshua never existed. These guys are the liberals of liberal. These guys tear apart the Bible every day, day in and day out. Why they do that is beyond me, get a different job, but <laughs> Okay, why bring up these guys? Because these gentlemen have a certain presupposition when they approach the Bible. These gentlemen believe that in the Torah, there's a, an old anti antiquated way of God doing things. He does things on a corporate scale. One guy does something, God punishes everybody. But we know that religion evolves, don't we? And we know that God evolves, don't we? So by the time of the prophets, gone are such antiquated ideas. Hello is individual responsibility. Hooray, breath of fresh air. God has now gotten past the primeval understanding of corporeality and onto the individuality that those Western philosophers crave. So what do they have to do with Rabbi Federer? Let me read you a quote. Many scholars maintain that the Bible contains two opposing views of divine retribution, a superior one that portrays divine retribution as individualized, and an inferior one that operates on a principle of corporate responsibility. Scholars have often viewed these texts as advocating a set of primitive ideas that were eventually superseded by a superior, more individualized religious impulse. What texts? With a tendency to exaggerate the importance of such texts such as Deuteronomy 24.16, Jeremiah 31, 29-30, and Ezekiel 18. Kaminsky, The Sins of the Fathers, page 320. Who's Kaminsky? Is he associated with Rabbi Federer? No. Nothing to do with Rabbi Federer. In a totally different universe than Rabbi Federer. So why do they utilize the same texts and the same arguments? Could it be that Rabbi Federer has unwittingly or knowingly adopted such yeah. a mindset? Adopted such liberal Protestant Christian mindsets. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> What liberal Christians believe. 
what liberal Christian or what they don't believe. <laughs> okay, so let's go forward. We need to keep that in mind because I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Recall our methodology, genre, audience, and context. And also, let's be fair. We need to avoid overreacting. Rabbi Federer may be right on some points. So let's do something fun. Let's assume Rabbi Federer is right entirely in his argument here. Let's put ourselves in his mindset for a moment and think. Let's go through this text as Rabbi Federer would. Make the wind up. So here's some of his presuppositions that he's operating with. It's an either or. Either man is individually responsible or there are generational consequences. The fathers can eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Remember, Rabbi Federer says, no, not anymore. It's gone. So that's his presupposition number one. Presupposition number two, isolating individual texts will, ipso facto, lead itself and lend itself to the 21st century anti-missionary arguments. All you got to do is just title your page, quote the verses, and it should be self-evident. So we're going to assume those two, and we're going to just walk through the passage. But what would that mean if we walked through this passage? Not there yet. Okay, so if we look at verses 1 to 4 of Ezekiel, so look at that with me. God is, in fact, rejecting any notion of corporate reward or punishment, whether from the preceding fathers eating sour grapes or to the subsequent sons. Thus, anywhere in the scriptures where such a concept is found, remember, such a thing, as he said, where such a thing is found must either be radically reinterpreted or discarded as a primitive doctrine left over from bygone days. But do we see this verse, this concept, anywhere in Scripture, anywhere that would indicate that the Father's actions do have consequences on the sons? Do we see this anywhere in the Torah? Anywhere? Sinai. Sinai? Creation. Uh, well, no, no, but at the Sinai, God himself says um, that he will, he will rep... Uh, visit the sins of the fathers upon the children of the third and the fourth and the generations. Right, and the blessings will go to the Psalm 89. Psalm 89. I don't know what that says off the top of my head. I don't have the whole Psalms memorized. Like you can Terror. <laughs> okay, so what about verses of the Torah that are. I don't know. I'll quote the Psalm next time. Bro. That are uh, contrary to these. Presuppositions of Rabbi Federal. We already read it. Exodus, Exodus 32. That's true. There's one. Could I have somebody? We're going to just go through these verses. Can I have somebody read each of these, please? Uh, number, or excuse me, Exodus 20, verse 5, please. shall not bow down to them or to serve them, for I am the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, what about Exodus 34, verse 7? Yeah. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All right, what about Numbers 14, 8? If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Excuse me, uh, Numbers 14, 18. Oh, okay, I got that too. <laughs> the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means 
clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. It's getting a little old now, isn't it? But none of those verses say that what what uh, what the Ezekiel passage says. Visiting the sins on the on on of the fathers on the children, he in those same phrases he says that the guilty will be punished. Right. It's not saying that the father sins and the innocent child suffers. Right. So we're going to get to the, the what Ezekiel is talking about, but just the concept of corporeality and one person sin and sins or any kind of idea of generational consequences we're seeing here. The generational consequences is a totally different issue than being addressed in, in, in Ezekiel. I mean, even, even without a specific generational reference, I mean, we have, uh, we've got the incident of, um, what's his name in uh, Joshua? Aiken. Uh, who, you know, he's the one that violated the commandment to not take any of the right. uh, loot, as it were, from the battle, and yet they took him and his entire family out. Right. And 30 whatever people died in the battle before as sort of like punishment for what he'd done. But also the, the sages comment on these passages and some of what I remember correctly, some of the argument on the generational issue yep. is that basically it's like they don't get um, generations in the future don't get a buy. It's like God's not going to automatically punish them just because they exist, but if they do the same sins as their fathers, they're going to get the full weight of the punishment. Precisely. Right. That's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, the point here of the passage that I'm quoting is to show that generally speaking, though directly Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31 might not be in their immediate context addressing the sins of the fathers and being poured out, there is, at least broadly speaking, these concepts in the Torah, as we see. And so keep in mind where we're going here is to the actions of one having consequences for the many. Or, in the example of Achan, one person having consequences for the entire nation. That's what, that's, that's what the Bible starts with. Though. Right. Right. Adam's sin and the whole creation is groaning under that sin. We live in a fallen world because we are affected by his sin. Got and indeed. But, but you know, this, this goes back to this, this philosophical argument of the origin of sin and why we have sin. But, and this is where maybe we differ, is that the world became fallen and we sin. What the Ezekiel passage seems to be indicating is the innocent are punished for the guilty simply because they're the offspring of the guilty. That's what's being, that's what's be, that's what Rabbi Federo is saying. He's saying, that's the way it used to be, that's not the way, that's not the way it is, and we can't say that anymore. That ever that the innocent suffered for the guilty. Because he's trying to do the switch. The innocent can pay for the guilty, so he's doing this thing, he's doing the switch where the innocent, that's right, where the innocent suffer for the guilty. He's trying to show the relationship that God says the relationship doesn't work that way. I would agree with them. That the, the innocent do not suffer for the guilty. But the innocent do suffer in this world. And Absolutely. And but they don't innocent, sin, not, but they don't innocent they don't suffer for someone else's sin. If they're if the but the sages say that the innocent do suffer. And if they the do. innocent do suffer, they can't be suffering for their own sins because they don't have those sins, therefore they're suffering for others' sins. Mm -hmm. 
but that's actually that's now that's flipping it around. Yeah. And, and I don't which don't is, disagree which, with that. Which is the opposite. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I'm just saying you don't suffer simply as punishment. In other words, the innocent children are not affected by the fact that the parents sin. In other words, the parents aren't going to get punished, so I'm going to punish the children. That's what he's saying. Right. But they li may live with the consequences of the sin. Absolutely. Parents, which the also, fallen world is the example. Exactly. The other factor that comes in play here is the issue of volunteering. Um, Absolutely. Like part, of the re part of the idea in the Ezekiel and in the Jeremiah passage is that God's not going to punish somebody else for someone else's sins as though the fathers can get away with it. It's okay, right. my kids will deal That's with exactly it. That's exactly right. We're, we're getting there. Okay. Yeah. So hang on. Yeah. I was just going to say, one thing I'm thinking about is this discussion that was going on is what the master said to the disciples, the blind man. Mm -hmm. Who sinned, this man That's or right. his parents, that he was born blind? And he says and neither. The master said neither. That's true. Okay. I do want to get through the last verse, which is essentially the same as the former, but I do want to read it. Deuteronomy 5, 9. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Okay, so generally speaking, with Rabbi Federer's mindset that there are no generational consequences, whether he's explicitly stating that in Ezekiel or elsewhere, he does seem to be indicating that, there is a contradiction between what he's saying that the righteous have not, that the individual cannot have anything to say to corporate, there is a contradiction. And so how do we avoid this contradiction? I would argue that we need to adopt a new mindset. Instead of di di adopting it either or, either it's individual responsibility completely, or it's corporate, Yes. we need to be looking at both. And this is exactly what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are arguing. There's both. There's a corporate and an individual aspect to our lives, to our community. The sins of one, yes, you do suffer for your own sins. The apostles say that. Moses says that. The prophets say that. Absolutely. But we need to understand that the prophets are correcting something here. Ezekiel and... Okay, so generally speaking, with Rabbi Federer's mindset that there are no generational consequences, whether he's explicitly stating that in Ezekiel or elsewhere, he does seem to be indicating that, there is a contradiction between what he's saying that the righteous have not, that the individual cannot have anything to say to corporate, there is a contradiction. And so how do we avoid this contradiction? I would argue that we need to adopt a new mindset. Instead of adopting it either or, either it's individual responsibility completely, or it's corporate, we need to be looking at both. And this is exactly what Ezekiel and Jeremiah are arguing. There's both. There's a corporate and an individual aspect to our lives, to our community. The sins of one, yes, you do suffer for your own sins. The apostles say that. Moses says that. The prophets say that. Absolutely. But we need to understand that the prophets are correcting something here. What Ezekiel is talking about is correcting two false mindsets. The conclusion of Ezekiel and Jeremiah is redemption. God is not overturning what he spoke in the Torah with the verses that we just mentioned, that the fathers have done one thing and to the third and fourth generation, it affects the subsequent children. Rather, what Ezekiel 
and Jeremiah are correcting is, one, lack of individual responsibility to live righteously. For example, if you read the remaining context of Ezekiel 18, you will see that it gives the characteristics of what it means to be a righteous man, what it means to be living in a righteous lifestyle according to the Torah. And number two, it's correcting a lack of hope that said individual righteousness can actually change the current judgment. And we see this exemplified, these two corrections in Ezekiel 20, which is just two chapters after the chapter in Ezekiel that we're currently debating. So if we have Ezekiel chapter 20, we have verse 4. And verse 4 begins like this. Let them know the abominations of their fathers. That's a part of verse 4 says. So can I have somebody read Ezekiel 20 verse 4? I got it. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Let them know the abominations of their fathers. There's a comma, but that's the end of 4. So verse 4 is saying, remember... The sins of your fathers. This is why you are here. This is why you are in exile. It's because of the sins of your fathers. Yet, at the end of the chapter, having what a what we would call bookmarks to the end of chapter 20 of Ezekiel is verse 30. Could you read that same verse, er, verse 30, please? Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Will you defy yourself, defile yourselves after the manner of your fathers and go whoring after their detestable things? In other words, yes, you are here because of the sins of the fathers. However, you have an opportunity to do things differently. You have an opportunity to be righteous, to change the course of history with your actions. And so what Ezekiel is bringing us to in chapter 18, and Jeremiah is doing the same thing, is bringing us from an overemphasis on the corporateness of sin back to the middle. There's a balance. It's not either we're corporately responsible or either we're individually responsible. It's both. So what your actions say does have consequences on the subsequent generations. However, you are individually responsible to live righteously and to set a new trajectory for the people of God. Amen. So keep that in mind when we talk about Rabbi Federer's understanding of Ezekiel as opposed to Ezekiel as read in context. And that's the second point. We assumed under Rabbi Federer's mindset that Ezekiel and Jeremiah are self-evident lending themselves to the 21st century anti-missionary argument. However, I would argue that Ezekiel and Jeremiah, when read in context, lend themselves to their context, to their original audience, which is the both and that we just mentioned. Mm. And the last point, we need to really understand that God is not overturning Torah. God is not... A, we should not assume that there is a contradiction between the prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and the Torah. There is rather a continuity. And that's something that is critical when we're approaching any kind of prophetic or wisdom literature, is that there's a continuity between the Torah and the prophetic literature. Hmm. The Rabbi Federal then moves on. We've got to keep moving forward here. He says, no blood atonement needed for Ezekiel. And we had mentioned earlier that this really is somewhat irrelevant to our argument. He's bringing this up to knock you over. 
He's throwing everything he's got at you at this point. In fact, he's got a, as we mentioned, he's got an entirely different link on his website to deal with this issue, but he feels the need to bring it up here. But this is a classic example of what we would call a, an argument from silence against the burden of proof. Now, what does that mean? What is an argument from silence? Well, an argument from silence is, on the one hand, bringing questions to the text that the text was not meant to answer. That's the first part of an argument from silence. The argument from silence, secondly, is assuming things about the text that, well, the text does not say this, therefore we can assume things about the text. But it's where the second part of the equation comes into play. Argument from silence without the burden of proof. Now, what is that? The burden of proof in this case is something which came before, which is true always and forever, unless it's explicitly overturned. In this case, it's the Torah. And we read in the Torah four verses from Moses' own hand, saying that the sins of the fathers do have consequences for the subsequent generations. In other words, the Torah is very clear. Individuals do have consequences for the corporate nation of Israel. And for the world, if you will. Mm. So that's the burden of proof. So we should expect that that concept, that those verses in Torah is true always and forever unless it's explicitly overturned. Which it never will be overturned, but theoretically it's possible, but it's not. So that's what's true. Is Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you've got to approach those texts assuming that they are still upholding Torah. And so approaching the text saying, well, Ezekiel isn't mentioning any atonement, their f blood atonement, therefore Ezekiel is overturning that, how much sense does that make? Not a whole lot. No. Secondly, Ezekiel 18 is not attempting to entertain the question of how to gain atonement while in the exile. If Ezekiel were presenting a new method of atonement, you need to consider this. If you've ever read the entire book of Ezekiel, you know that as you continue on from chapter 18, past chapter 20 where we were, 20 chapters later is this grand entrance into the future temple. And in the future temple, there are sacrifices, blood sacrifices being offered for atonement, kephar, same word used. So if Ezekiel is overturning blood sacrifices as mentioned by the Torah, one, there's a discontinuity between the Torah, which we already said we should not go that route. Two, you are going to have a hard time making sense of Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, which talk explicitly about a future temple. And number three, why would the Jews be so eager to return to Jerusalem to build their temple, to begin making sacrifices again, if the prophets had railed against such sacrifices while in the exile? It doesn't make much sense. You would expect to see the later prophets then rebuking them on behalf of the former prophets, but we don't see that at all. We see encouragement to rebuild the temple. We see encouragement to lay the foundations to begin offering sacrifices. Mm. So that's the, another point of Rabbi Federer. He's not taking Ezekiel in context, which I find immensely problematic, and so should you. All right. So three-point response. You meet Rabbi Federer on the street. He says, hey, I appreciate that you're wearing a kippah and tzitzit. Sounds great. Oh, well, you believe in Yeshua? Interesting. Haven't you ever read Ezekiel 18 or Jeremiah 31? You say, hey, Rabbi Federer, nice to meet you too. In fact, I have. 
actually, we just got done with a class on this, and I'd like to give you three points, like a sermon illustration. So, number one, Rabbi Federer's argument assumes some kind of discontinuity between the Torah and the prophets. This assumption is both dangerous and unwarranted, hearkening, as it will, to the post-Enlightenment critical Protestant scholars that sound remarkably similar to Rabbi Federer's own arguments. Number two, Ezekiel and Jeremiah are correcting an overemphasis on corporate sin. The generations that are in the exile have either gone too far to the individual, saying, well, it doesn't matter what I do, and Ezekiel 18 says, no, it does matter what you do, you need to be righteous, or going too far to the other side and say, well, here, the Father's got us here, I guess this is where we're going to be. No, there's a correction on that for the both and. And number three, Asserting that Ezekiel is presenting an alternative method of atonement brings the wrong questions to the text, overturns what the Torah has explicitly stated, and fails to consider the remainder of Ezekiel's message. All right, let's move forward. Deuteronomy 24.16. This is what Rabbi Federo has as the cornerstone of his entire argument. You'll notice when he brings up the passage he says at the end of his article, some Christians and Messianics are using rabbinic sources, which we'll get to uh, soon in the next lesson. We're going to get there, but he says we need to just stick with what the Bible says. And he says, quote, and the Bible states in no, ex in no uncertain terms, one man cannot die for the sins of another. And he is essentially quoting Deuteronomy 24, 16. I got it. However, could I, yeah, could I have someone read that verse, please? 2416? Correct. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now wait a moment. When Rabbi Federo said, this is what Deuteronomy 2416 says, he only quoted the last, the last half. So he's essentially quoting Deuteronomy 2416b. He's not quoting Deuteronomy 24.16 in its entirety. And we have here, again, my translation from the Masoretic text, trying to be as objective as possible when approaching Rabbi Federer's argument. Fathers shall not be put to death for children, and children shall not be put to death for fathers. A man for his sin shall be put to death. Now this is interesting. We need to, before we move forward, we need to understand, this is part of our methodology, the context of Deuteronomy 24. Mm. And if you have an English Bible, then you'll notice if you have the chapter headings that have been added to the, the scripture passages to kind of keep you uh, on the page of where exactly you are in the book. And if you have a, one of the major three translations, uh, ESV, NIV, or KJV, or major four, NASB, so you'll notice that it's sometime before Deuteronomy 24.16, it gives you a chapter heading that will say something to this effect. Miscellaneous laws. It's the uninspired title. Exactly. But miscellaneous laws? What, is, what does that mean? It's essentially as though the commentators or the, the uh, editors are looking at the scripture and saying, I have no idea what this means, therefore miscellaneous laws. So, are we led to believe that this portion of Torah is simply a disjointed hodgepodge of laws, according to your, your biblical editors? Well, I'll tell you what. 
I would bank that Rabbi Federo is hoping that you believe that. Rabbi Federo is actually banking on you accepting that these are miscellaneous laws. If he is, then he can simply quote Deuteronomy 24.16b, and he doesn't need to quote the whole verse. He doesn't need to quote verse 17 or 15 or 14. Why? Because they don't have anything to say. They're a different law. They're a different context. They're disjointed. But they do have something to say, because they're all about justice. Amen. That's exactly right. They're all about one thing, which is the point of Moses writing this particular section. Moses knows what he's doing here. At least I would like to believe so. And if you believe that Moses actually wrote this, and that he actually knows what he's doing, you've got to believe that this section of scripture has a common thread running between it. And so I would argue that Moses has a point to these verses. And so I'm going to read, for the sake of time, Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 through 17. And keep in mind, when we approach verse 16, the preceding context. So it says the following. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your own countrymen, or whether he is one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his, on his day before his, the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to Adonai, and it becomes sin in you. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due to an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment and pledge. So what we see, if you see the whole passage in its context, verse 16 actually is not very, talking about one person making vicarious atonement for another person at all. It's a very different context. Mm -hmm. If you read Deuteronomy in the, uh, on the whole, there's a lot about social justice mm -hmm. in the book. And so verse 16 begins with someone who's guilty of withholding wages against a poor man holding it past the sunset when he's supposed to return it. And you can imagine the scenario. The poor man cries out against Adonai to this person and says, This man has withheld my wages. And you can see the man, suppose he were to die that evening, approaches the throne of God. And God says, Why did you withhold your wages from this poor man? My father, he's a stingy man. I wanted to give it back to him, but he just wouldn't let me. Or you could see the opposite. You know, my son. My son maybe needed an extra garment, but this poor, he didn't, the poor man didn't need it, but my son needed it. Blame shifting. That is what this verse is talking about. It's talking about the father blame shifting onto the son, or the son blame shifting onto the father instead of accepting the responsibility for your own actions. So the cornerstone for Rabbi Federer's argument has nothing to do with individuals atoning vicariously for the sins of another, whether on in this plane of existence or whether in another. So in that case, we've got to ask the question, Rabbi Federer's arguments here in Exodus 32 and Ezekiel 18 and in Deuteronomy 24, he's either irrelevant, as in this case, or he's missed the context, or he's read his arguments, his conclusion, into the text. 
So we find that after examining Rabbi Federer's arguments, after examining the text that he uses, in fact, a lot of the texts either point elsewhere or they point explicitly to the opposite, thinking mainly of the Exodus passage. The Exodus passage explicitly talks about Moses being successful, especially if you understand the psalm that we quoted earlier. So we don't want to just simply tear down Rabbi Federer's argument. We want to build up. Okay, you might, you might simply want to tear down Rabbi Federer's argument. And in fact, it's very telling that Rabbi Federer does not offer a positive case for individual, individuals not being able to atone. He simply quotes the passages that tear down if you would believe in that. But we want to do something further. We want to be good scholars of the Bible. And so we're going to present the positive case for the individual having corporate consequences. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm not going to attempt to prove that one person can atone for the sins of another explicitly. Rather, I'm going to build a structure for you. And I want you to see this structure being built from the Torah and the prophets and the writings and the apostles to build the structure for one person being able to have corporate consequences. In fact, consequences that can reach the world. And then once you have that structure, you will have a beautiful structure to place Yeshua into, which is the entire purpose of our argument. Amen. So we're going to start with the Torah, and we've got to move quickly through these. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list some verses for you. And the ones that are with an asterisk, I'll only speak to those. So the first one is Genesis 18, which lo and behold has an asterisk, so we're going to talk about it. No, they all don't have an asterisk. Some do. Okay, Genesis 18, 20-23. Here's the famous passage of Abraham interceding for Sodom. One, it's fascinating that Abraham is interceding for someone else at all. Keep that in mind. Why do we simply accept this at face value if no one can actually do that? So keep that in mind. Secondly, Abraham's argument is for X amount of people in the city. Will you spare this city, Adonai? And you go down from 50 to 45 to 40, 30, 20, and then finally 10. And God says, if there are 10 righteous men in the city, I will not destroy the city. And it goes on his way. So God must actually have in his economy of dealings with humanity, the righteous being able to spare an entire city as early as Genesis. Hmm. So keep that in mind. And we move forward. We have Exodus 7. Pharaoh's hard heart is causing the entire Egyptian nation to be plagued. Right. Exodus 32, we see that this is one of the main texts we've been speaking about tonight. And do not overlook the fact that Moses uses as his primary argument for God turning away his initial wrath, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Hmm. And God listens to him. Numbers 14. God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And then number 16. This one is actually quite fascinating. This is number 16, 20 through 26. Verse 22 explicitly says this. Shall one man sin? And will you be angry with all the congregation? He's talking about Korah. Korah has sinned. And the question is being asked. Shall one man, that is Korah, sin? And you'll be angry with the entirety of the congregation of Israel? And here's the response. 
Depart, please, lest you be swept away with all of their sins. Get away from him. In other words, exactly. In other words, yes, one man's sin will cause the entire congregation to be swept away. And to prove this, you better leave. Because even if you have no associations or dealings with Korah, the fact that you're around him is going to cause you to perish with him. Bet the rabbi doesn't like that one. I bet he does not. I bet he doesn't also like the next one, the next few ones that we're going to be talking about. Numbers 25, Pinchas, or Phineas, in the English translation, his act of zeal against a, an Israelite man, and I believe it's a Moabite woman? Mm. Is that right? Moabite woman causes the wrath against Israel, or the disease, to cease. So, one person's actions causing the wrath on the whole nation to cease. So that's the Torah. And, and one nation's action causing the, the disease in the first place, too. Exactly, that's exactly right. Because the, the point of the Torah is clear. We just went from Genesis all the way through Numbers. And aside from the verses we already quoted, explicitly talking about the fathers to the third and fourth generation, this is clear. Moses is explicitly clear here. And so let's move on to the writings as they're generally considered. Joshua 7. Achan, one man, takes loot from a war. Israel's doing well. They go up to battle against Ai, and they get destroyed. Not completely, but it's not, it does not go well for them. And then Joshua falls on his face, and he says, Lord, what happened? We were doing so well. And then we went up against this pitiful little town, and we get, our, we get completely decimated. And God says, Israel sinned. All Israel sinned. Okay, all Israel sinned. Well, who? Okay, uh, the tribe. This tribe. Okay, well, who? Okay, the family. Well, who? One man. Okay, well, which is it? Did all Israel sin or did Achan, one man, sin? Yes, both. Because Achan's one sin is counted for all of Israel. And I said we wouldn't go there today, and we're not going to go there today, but the Talmud in Sanhedrin 43b to 43, 44a, if you have a copy of the Talmud, provides an excellent discussion on why Achan's one sin is counted for all of Israel. Okay, moving forward, 2 Samuel 21, Saul's sons killed to atone for vow-breaking towards the Gibeonites. So Saul broke the vow that had previously been made, and there's a famine that comes upon the land, and in order to atone for the famine, Saul's sons have to be killed. That happens, immediately the famine ceases. Moving forward, 2 Samuel 24, David's census causes the death of 70,000 men. So David takes a census of all Israel, and God gives him the options, well, you can do X, Y, or Z, and you can fall into the hands of this enemy, or you can do this, or I can smite you with a plague, and David chooses to put his hand to put him his own life and the life of all Israel into the hands of God. Right. First Kings, Israel is given up on account of Jeroboam's sin. It explicitly says that, not on account of Israel adopting Jeroboam's sin, although that was true, but explicitly because of Jeroboam. And then here's one 
That's very fascinating. You've got to stick with me on this, because you might, on the face value of it, think that this militates against what we're talking about. Ezekiel 14, 14 says this, Even though these men, three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, that is, in the midst of Israel, by their own righteousness, they can only deliver themselves. Now you might be saying, huh, well, Taylor, that just goes to show that the righteous can't actually atone for their own righteousness. They can't spare their generation. But think about this. If the exiles had no concept, if the Torah had no concept of the righteous atoning for the unrighteous, this statement wouldn't make any sense. In other words, in any other normative situation, Noah Daniel and Job would have atoned for their generation. It's just the fact that they are so bad in that generation, not even these men can atone. And perhaps you could say, they need someone more. They need someone who's more righteous than these three men. Hmm. Moving it's, forward. It's a good point, because you just took a you just took a an argument from silence and turned it into a not an argument from silence. Because it's not silent. The argument, the, the statement that's made wouldn't make any sense at all if, if they couldn't do it. Why would you even say it if it wasn't even possible to do it at any point? Exactly. It would be somewhat like this. God says, if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in their generation, they could only deliver themselves. And you could hear the response, well, yeah, that's the way you've always done things, isn't it? Why even mention yeah, those well, guys? What's your point? Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's not how they respond. It's, they respond... And as you see, as you saw in uh, Ezekiel 18, the call is to respond in individual righteousness. Mm. The last text of the writings, excuse me, we've got one more after this, second to last one, Daniel 6.24, the men who accused Daniel, or actually mm. ratted him out, even though it was just them, because it's the, the, they're speaking to the king, so their families were involved in this. However, their wives and children are all thrown into the lion's den in the stead of Daniel. And you might say, well, that's not fair. Well, there's both corporate and individual responsibility in the Tanakh, and we need to, we need to understand that. And then Esther, chapter 9, verse 13, Haman's sons are hanged on his account. So we have one man, Haman, boo, <laughs> setting up gallows for uh, Mordecai. And it turns out it does not go well for him. He ends up, him and all of his sons, getting hanged on his own gallows. But yet his sons, from the, what the text says, didn't have anything to do with it. They may have, that's true, but the text doesn't seem to indicate that. And then the apostolic scriptures. Could I have someone please read... Uh, Joseph, could you read John eleven fifty through fifty one, please? Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So what we have here are the words of and fifty one. Yes. Oh, fifty one. Sorry, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation. So I have here, uh, Caiaphas is speaking of Yeshua, and he says it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people, and that the, the whole nation should not perish. And so if Rabbi Federer is right, you should immediately see, Caiaphas, what are you talking about? 
We, we have never understood the Tanakh to speak in such a way. Please excuse yourself. But we don't see that at all. And we don't have any reason to believe that this is fabricated on the mouth of Caiaphas. There's no textual evidence of that. And there's certainly no contextual evidence for that. So I have every reason to believe this is genuinely on the lips of Caiaphas, the high priest, mind you. This is a man who knows the Torah. If any man believed that it's impossible for the sins of one person to take away the corporate sins, it would be the high priest, especially when dealing with Yeshua, who is a troublemaker in a lot of cases. But more than that, if there was one person in the scriptures who, as traditionally understood, would have overturned any notion of any person atoning for the nations apart from Yeshua, it would have been Paul. But we see the, the exact opposite uh, from Paul in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Joseph, again, got such a great voice. Could you read that? <laughs> I am speaking the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Messiah. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul is willing to be cut off for all Israel. And Paul believes sincerely. Exactly. He is almost, well I wouldn't say almost, he has the exact same heart as Moses here. His heart is not to see the Jews cut off. His heart is to see them saved. As we saw as we walked through Exodus 33 and 34, Moses, his relationship with God is good. It's thriving, but he's constantly saying, God, what about your people? But your people, God. And, Mo, and Paul, in the same way, is saying, oh, if only I could be cut off for their sake. And you'll see a lot of commentators doing some fancy footwork to get around with this explicitly states that, well, Paul's just being hyperbolic. He's kind of correcting for some anti-Semitic statements he made in a different book. But I, I disagree. I think that we need to fit this into our Pauline theology. Paul genuinely believes that even though Yeshua has come, been crucified, raised, and is interceding, there is still the ability for one man to be able to be cut off so that others can be saved. We need to adopt that into our mindset, by the way. All right. So we've walked through Exodus, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Prophets, and the apostolic scriptures. What we found is that Exodus shows us a beautiful picture of Moses interceding for Israel and being successful in doing so, being willing to be blotted out, not seeing any problem with that. We see Ezekiel talking about the need for individual righteousness. And we see Deuteronomy not talking about the matter of at hand at all. But then building up, we see the Torah, the prophets, and the apostles all saying that one person's actions do have corporate consequences, do have consequences for the nation of Israel, the world even. And we need to understand that it is, according to the scripture, consistent with the scriptures for one man to die for the sins of another. And so next week, what we're going to be doing, or next uh, next lesson, we're going to be looking at the rabbinic sources. We've been very careful not to touch on any rabbinic sources. So we're going to dive into the Talmud and other rabbinic sources to see if this concept is this just perhaps my exegesis have I gone astray here do the do other rabbis agree with me 
And if so, that will bear itself out. And then we'll look at Second Temple literature, which will define what that is and why that's important. So, bottom line, you're saying that the good rabbi is laying out his case and saying that we should look at the scripture, but ultimately, that's not what the scripture says. And next week, you'll build the argument further, I, I suppose, from the sages and rabbinic literature and the Midrash and all that kind of stuff. So the rabbi's got a different axe to grind then, it seems. It does seem that. So he, he essentially jettisons all rabbinic writings. And whether that's for pure argumentation purposes, uh, it seems that he, on his website and in his book, genuinely believes that we need to simply stick with the scriptures and the scriptures will bear itself out to the anti-missionary arguments. But we see that's not the case. He Furthermore, I think... Exactly. <laughs> and so furthermore, I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to just say, well, forget what the rabbis say. Because we're asking, what do Jews believe? What did Yeshua believe? Yeshua certainly did not throw out the tradition of his day. And so, I, and so our purpose here, walking through the text, was to simply say, okay, suppose we were to hypothetically throw out the rabbis. I don't think it's a good idea. But even if we did, we would still see that Rabbi Federer's arguments do not hold the weight that they originally, upon first glance, seemed to. Amen. Good job. Amen.